Anyway, thank you guys. Great to be here. All right, Revelation 2, the first seven verses. Let me, um, sorry, I, I think I have this. Yeah, here we go. This is written, Jesus is speaking here. Um, and he's literally addressing seven churches. This message is to the first church called the church at Ephesus. And here's what he says. Ready? Revelation 2, verse 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you've persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, in other words, this you have in your favor, this is commendable, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the truth of your word. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to do what you want to do today, to move in our lives, to move in our hearts. I pray for strength. I pray for anointing. I pray, Lord God, that your word would go forth by revelation, proclamation, and in demonstration of the Spirit's power. In the name of Jesus, amen, amen, amen. All right, let me just share. We're going to talk, I'm going to share this morning about loving God and the call to love God, which is, as Jesus said, when he was approached, you know, they said, what is the greatest commandment? And who was it that approached Jesus? It was the, it was the lawyers or the scribes. In other words, it was the religious teachers. And they came to him posing that question for the express purpose of tripping him up. What is the most important commandment? Jesus summarized it and he said this. He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is the greatest commandment. And he said, the second is like unto it, he said, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. So, if you read the book of James, he says that everything literally hinges upon loving God. We fulfill all the law by loving God and loving people. And Jesus said in another place that... You know, we call it the golden rule. What do you do? We do unto others, okay, as we would have them do unto us. Now, again, we have to recognize it comes with a revelation of who we are in Christ because there are some people that cut themselves, right? So you want want to do unto others as, as you do unto yourself. No, you don't want that. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about coming to that place where you recognize who you are in Christ and then you treat people just as you, as God treats you. In fact, that's, that's part of Paul's writings repeatedly. He says we have to forgive people the way God has forgiven us, in the same measure with which God has forgiven us. So, loving God is really the central theme of the Bible, of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's all about loving God. In the very beginning, if you go back to Exodus, you know, even in, in well, let's go back to the garden. In the garden, when God created Adam and Eve, what did he do? He said, basically, 
I have given you some parameters, a safeguard. Don't touch that tree. You can eat from this tree. You know, and, he's, and God came down and literally fellowshiped, walked with them in the coolness of the garden. So it was all about relationship. It was all about love in the very beginning. And then later on, when, you know, God started giving them laws, here's the interesting thing, a lot of people miss this, is in Exodus, where God gives the children of Israel the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, right after that, He gives them uh, uh, literally the detailed description for how they're to build a sanctuary that would be called the tabernacle. And the interesting thing is, when we think about Moses going to the top of Mount Sinai and being there in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights, he comes down that mountain, he has in his hand the Ten Commandments, he sees the children of Israel all jacked up, and he smashes the Ten Commandments out of anger. And a lot of times that's what we think about, with just, just that. You know, Moses is on top of the mountain, God gives him the Ten Commandments. But we have to understand that when he was on top of the mountain, he was given the blueprints for the tabernacle. And if you read the book of Exodus, there is so much more uh, devoted, space devoted to the building of the tabernacle than there is to the Ten Commandments. And here's what the Lord says to Moses for his people in Exodus chapter 25, verse number 8 and 9. He says, I want you to build me a sanctuary. Let them build me a sanctuary, he says, that I may dwell among them. And he tells them how to build it. Don't take any shortcuts. Build it exactly according to the divine specifications. Make sure you do it my way. But here's the point. God was never, it was never the intention of the Lord that even in the Old Testament, He would just merely have a people that go to the tabernacle, that offer sacrifices, that keep His commands in terms of the outward conformity. God's saying, I want you to build me a sanctuary. If all he wanted was a legalistic relationship that was based upon do's and don'ts, he wouldn't have instructed them to build the sanctuary. He said, because I want to dwell in the midst of my people. So they need to understand that I require a sanctuary. The word sanctuary is a very powerful word. It comes from the Hebrew word kadesh. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, God is called Jehovah Kadesh, the Lord that sanctifies. So it's a word that was never used merely for a facility, a building that would be used for ordinary mundane purposes. In other words, this is a very special building. This is a holy place. This is a sanctuary. This is a sacred meeting place. And God says, let them build me, Moses. Let my people build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. I want to have a relationship with my people. And because I'm holy, they have to build me a holy sanctuary. So here's where we're going with this. Understanding that loving God is the first and foremost commandment. That this is really the core and the heart of the gospel message. That God wants to have a relationship with us. Everything that He requires from us, and He does require that we obey His commandments. He does require that we do those things that are pleasing in His sight. 
There are a lot of people today that would try to write that off, but you know what? Just <laughs> Jesus is, just read John chapter 14. He who loves me will keep my commandments, John said. Read First John chapter 3 if you don't believe it. You know, it says that very clearly that we have to do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We have to love him. We have to obey his commandments. Now, the reality is we do it not to say that we love God, not to show that we love God, not to even to earn, certainly not to earn the love of God, but we do it because he loves us. And because he loved us, we walk in the revelation of what he did for us. First John 4:19 says, "We love him because he first loved us." And then out of that, we reciprocate that love. We show God that we love him. And the reality is, this church in Ephesus is one of the most powerful ministries that in, in the history of the early church. Paul literally was the one who founded this church. It was forged in the crucible of a white-hot spiritual revival that literally dramatically impacted their city. It was a move of God's Spirit that was characterized by powerful preaching, extraordinary miracles, profound repentance, signs and wonders, and the salvation of multitudes. This story, you can read about it in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. It says, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now listen to this. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks, dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books. And it says, and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver, which would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars today. Then it says, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now listen, do you know what that means, that last statement? The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. What that means is that God took over the city. What it means is the vast majority of people came to a relationship with Jesus Christ. There was transformation in that city. Now, come on. We're not talking about America. This isn't what, you know, this city in that time isn't what America looks like today. This city is steeped in darkness. There aren't any Christians. There aren't any believers. They worship idols. They're involved in witchcraft. They're demonized. They're given over to immorality and all manner of occult activity. Paul shows up with the message of the gospel and the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit end up breaking out and prevailing in that region to the point that the devil is literally dethroned from his, his rulership in that region and the word of God prevails. Hallelujah. So this is the beginning of the church in Ephesus. How many know that God has done great things in this nation as well? 
You see, he's done th- great things. I'm not saying at the same scale or region where we've seen entire cities transform. Perhaps we have. You know, you think about Los Angeles in the beginning of the, cent- of the, of the 20th century, 1906, Azusa Street, and how the gospel literally spread out through there. And so many people are affected not only there, but across America and literally to the nations of the world. I'm telling you that God has, we have had very similar history in this nation in the sense of we have a history, a backdrop of spiritual awakening and revival. Another significant fact relative to these Christians in Ephesus, that they were the recipients of some of the deepest revelation of God in his redemptive work. To them was written Paul's letter, which we call today the book of Ephesians. Come on now, how many would like to have your name you know, on the envelope when, when the book of Ephesians was delivered to your home? Come on, isn't that powerful? They received revelation that they were seated in heavenly places in Christ. They had been granted all spiritual blessings. They were predestined to be children of God. They had been quickened, made alive in Christ, were saved solely by virtue of the grace of God through their faith. So these are a people that experience profound revelation, deep teaching, more deeper than anyone else had ever experienced at that time, and they had been literally birthed in, in that white-hot crucible of a revival, of an awakening. But here we find in our text, literally just a few years later, what takes place is these same Christians, even though Jesus commends them for many things, you know, verses 2 and 3, I know your works, your labor, your patience. In other words, you toil tirelessly, you work very hard. He said you're patient, and the word literally speaks of a persevering and pressing through and not giving up in the midst of much resistance and, and persecution and hardship. He says you hold fast to holiness. You, you know those who are evil. You don't put up with those who are evil. You won't allow sin and wickedness to, to be in your midst. And he speaks to them about how they had embraced a, a you know, sound doctrine. He said, you test those who claim to be apostles and are not. In other words, you won't put up with false teaching. You won't allow you know, the enemy to come and spread his lies in your midst. But yet, now, 30 years later... The word of God through Jesus himself to the apostle John comes to them and he has an indictment against them. Verse number four. Nevertheless, I have something against you. I have something against you. What is it? You have left your first love. Translations say you've fallen from your first love. Others say you've forsaken your first love. He says you have left your first love. Now, the question has to be asked, what does it mean to fall from first love? What is he speaking about when he says that these saints had fallen from their first love? Was he referring to their love from God, their, you know, loving people? Well, I believe it was both. Because let me give you just a breakdown here. I'll give you a couple of scriptures. First John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Amen. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. If you love the begot if you love the one who is begotten, the one who begot, then you will love those who are begotten. If you love the Father, you're gonna love the children. Right? You know, you don't you don't come to me and, and diss my children, right? You don't do that. Oh, that's just not that's not a good thing. You don't you know, I'm I'm not talking about if your kids are doing something they shouldn't be doing, they don't need discipline or correct it. But I'm saying when you come 
and it's and it's you know you start dissing people and yet when we speak about other people especially in the church brothers and sisters in the lord do you understand that we're dissing god's children doesn't matter who who they are they're god's children just as much as you are you don't have any special rights he loves them just as much as he loves you they might be homeless they might be drug addicts they might be prostitutes. They might be in the church and genuinely know God, but he still loves them. And he still has a desire for them. And so we have to recognize that. This is certainly true regarding those that know the Lord personally. First John 4, 20 and 21. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Wow. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Do you understand that when your passion for God cools down, cools off, your love and compassion for people will also diminish. See, it's the love of God that compels us. It's the love of God, according to Romans chapter 5, that has been shed abroad in our heart that enables us to love people the way God loves them. In other words, it's grace. Do you understand? Listen to me. I'm going to say a couple things here, and I want you to hear this. Most Christians in America walk by sight, not by faith. We're sensual. The book of James speaks of Christians who are sensual. Do you know what sensual means? Sensual means we live according to our senses. We live in the sensual realm. We live in the material realm. We, we make decisions based on how we feel, on what we believe, on what we perceive through our natural senses, not based upon the truth of God's Word. And the reality is, we are to be a people that literally pray down... Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's not about living by what we see, feel, hear, not according to our senses, but according to what the Word of God says. Let me ask you a question. If you don't read the Word of God, how are you going to know the will of Him? You might worship Him, but if you don't know the Word of God, you are not going to know the will of the Father. We've got to be a people that understand the Word of God. We were in a meeting with Mike Bickle, and in that meeting, Mike shared very candidly how his concern for the emerging generation in the midst of what is happening, even at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, is that many of the younger generation do not know the Word of God, is what he said. So they made an increased effort. There has always been an effort there, a commitment to getting people discipled in the Word, but they've stepped that up now, even to the place where they're saying they've got to know the Word of God. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you read the Word? When was the last time you took the Bible out and you read it because you're so hungry for the truth of God's Word? That was a rhetorical question. I'm glad you read it this morning. We have to be a people that hunger and thirst for the Word. I love you, God. Therefore, I obey you. 
I love you, Jesus. It is not something that requires effort. It's not, it's not something that is, you know, drudgery to me. I read your word. I pray. I worship. I obey you because I love you. Because I walk in the revelation of what you've done for me and how much you love me. When your passion for God cools off, your compassion for people will wane. You know, when I first got saved, I was crazy. I mean, I was crazy. You talk about zeal without knowledge, all right? I mean, if I didn't read 25, 30 chapters a day, man, I was bummed out. Okay? If I didn't pray at least three to five hours a day, I was bummed out. I want to tell you, though, even though I'm, somebody say, well, that might be a little bit extreme. Let me tell you something. I saw some extreme things happen. I saw miracles take place. We saw entire city blocks come to Jesus Christ in the inner city where we lived. We literally had meetings in people's homes where the power of God fell in these homes. And everybody in the house was laid out under the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about non-Christians. People who never been to church. Laid out under the power of the Holy Spirit so that there were even four-year-olds laying on the ground speaking in tongues and prophesying. So, for those who say, you know what, zeal without knowledge, let me tell you what typically happens, unfortunately, in the church today. What do we have today? We have knowledge without zeal. Knowledge without zeal. We know the Word, but we don't know the power. We, we don't, and when I say the Word, I'm talking about the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. Where it literally, you know, we can quote Bible verses. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, He said, you diligently study the Scriptures. Do you know how diligently the Pharisees studied the Scriptures? They had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. He said, you diligently study the Scriptures. These Scriptures testify about me, but yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. It's the heart. It's love. It's a relationship. Romans 12, 11. Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. The reality is, is that our Christian faith is, you know, somebody said that Christianity is like a bath. After a while, it's not so hot. The truth is that God wants us to move to a place where we go from glory to glory, from faith to faith, that our love for Him increases and intensifies. We sing a song, what's it say? It says, the more I... What does it say? The more I seek Him, the more I find Him. The more I find Him, the more I love Him. You see, how how can we say, you know, that that we know who God is? Paul said in Philippians 3.10, literally after years of serving God, of raising the dead, of seeing miracles take place, he cried out and he said, I want to know Him! I want to know Him! He said, who has plumbed the depth of the knowledge of God, he said in Romans. His ways are unsearchable. His fathomless. 
the more we seek Him, yes, the more him, but the more we also realize how much more there is to experience in Him. God is looking for people that will love Him. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus uses the word one thing. It's also found in the Old Testament. Mary and Martha. You know the story. Martha is busy serving Jesus. She's, you know, preparing a meal. She's getting things ready. And here's Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha is upset. She said, look, my sister's so lazy. She won't help. And what ends up happening, she comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, don't you care? Look at my sister. Here she is sitting at your feet, lovesick, looking into your eyes. And sitting on her butt, doing nothing. Tell her to get up and help. Jesus looks and says, Martha, 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 Martha. He says, only one thing is needed. You're distracted. You're being pulled in all these different directions, is what the Greek language says. You know, you're being stretched. And you're like a a rubber band that's being stretched to the point where it's going to snap. And... And he's saying, but there's one thing that's needed. Mary's chosen that good part. Mary's chosen. You, you're, you're literally serving the work of God. Mary is worshiping the God of the work. You come to that place where you have to recognize that this one thing is needed. The rich young ruler came to Jesus. And he fell down on his face and he cried out, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Then the Lord says, You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And then the rich young man, here's what he says. He says, Teacher, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. The interesting thing at that point is Jesus turns around and looks at him. And the scripture says, and he loved him. And he said, one thing you lack. One thing is needed. Go, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he says to him, one thing you lack, what is that? Do you understand the commandments that Jesus shared with him were part of the Ten Commandments? But they were the Ten Commandments that had to do with man's responsibility to honor man. In other words, they were the commands that were literally on that horizontal level. But the greatest commandment, he said what? Is to, he says literally, that you shall have no other gods before me. And the problem with this man, the thing which he lacked was that even though he was doing all the right things as it pertained to his horizontal relationships and and, and loving people and caring people and treating people with respect, his love, his vertical relationship with God wasn't there. Something had interrupted. Something had literally uh, superseded and, and, and literally taken priority in his life so that he loved money more than he loved God. And please understand, listen, this guy, I'm sure, gave a lot of riches to the te- temple back in those days. 
But Jesus saw his heart. He realized that money was something that had captivated this man to the place that he wasn't willing to give it up if God were to put his finger on his life and require that he give it up. They ask you something this morning. Is there one thing in your life that if God were to say, give it up, walk away from it, lay it down, I want it, you would struggle with that. That would be a difficult thing for you to give up. Jesus wants it all. No other gods before me. Love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and the material things of this world. The book of John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.15 The love of the Father is not in him. Don't love the world. Don't be so in love with this world that, you know, you all of your time, all of your energy is spent in, in the pleasures of this life and in making money, you know, and just enjoying these temporal things that will one day burn up. You have time to watch TV. You have time to play golf. You have time to go shopping. All of those things are not inherently evil or wrong by themselves, but you don't have a place of intimacy, communion, and prayer with God. You're not in the Word. You're not seeking God. Your love relationship with God is cooled off. One thing I have desired of the Lord, the psalmist said, that will I seek after. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I desired, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Do you understand what he was saying? He's saying that which is the number one priority in my life is to be in the presence of my God. To spend time worshiping Him, loving on Him. Praising Him. Not just singing. Come on, how many know that singing, even playing an instrument, isn't necessarily worship? Because Jesus said, these people draw near to me with their mouths, but their heart is far from me. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts don't belong to me. Back in the beginning of the 20th century, after the Azusa Street outpouring occurred. There was a gentleman who was literally a newspaper writer, a journalist. His name is Frank Bartleman. His name was Frank Bartleman. Frank Bartleman literally recorded, documented what had happened in the Azusa Street outpouring. One of the things that he spoke about prophetically, he said, he said, it'll come to pass after this great outpouring in the future. He said, where you will see in the move of the Spirit, in those churches that embraced the outpouring of Pentecost, the Azusa Street outpouring. 
He said, you will see what will happen is there will be a people that will literally worship a God that they don't have a relationship with. He said, they will, they will be so in, consumed and inundated with worship, but they won't have a prayer life, is what he said. In other words, I'm not saying, so worship is God's design. Worship is what we are created for. Worship is, is where God wants us to be, but worship isn't just when we sing in church. Come on, it's not, it's not 30 or 45 minutes or an hour before the sermon. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. There, our heart is just enamored with Jesus. Where David said, my heart overflows or indicteth the good, with the good theme. My heart indicteth the good matter. In the Hebrew language, David is saying, my heart is boiling over. My heart is boiling over, man. I'm, I, when I'm getting in the presence of God, you, nobody has to tell me to put my hands up. No one has to tell me, come on, worship the Lord. He said, my heart is just boiling over. The love of God is just consuming me. I can't help but worship Him. I can't help but praise Him. I can't help but tell Him how good He is. There's a man by the name of Sadhu Sundar Singh. He used to be a Sikh from the Punjab area in India. He was radically transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what he said about prayer. The essence of prayer does not consist in asking God for something, but in opening our hearts to God, in speaking with Him, and living with Him in perpetual communion. It's not just taking your wish list and saying, God, I need you to do this, 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 and this. No. It's perpetual communion. It's a lifestyle of fellowship. Prayer does not mean asking God for all kinds of things we want. It is rather the desire for God Himself, the only giver of life. Prayer is the desire to possess God Himself, the source of all life. The true spirit of prayer does not consist in asking for blessings, but in receiving Him who is the giver of all blessings, and in living a life of fellowship with Him. Let me ask you something. When do you pray? When do you worship? Do you pray when you're in trouble and that's the only time you pray? Do you worship when you come to church or that's the only other time? Do you read the Word just when the preacher asks you to turn in your Bible to? Where is your relationship with God? If the purpose of your praying is merely to be delivered from your present circumstances that are uncomfortable for you is that the reason why you pray I hate the way my life is going God help me get me out of this mess deliver me see many people pray out of the destitution of their life But we will never experience all that God has intended for us until our prayer is motivated out of desperation for His life. Many people pray out of the destitution of their life, their circumstances. But true prayer is praying out of desperation for His life. Your loving kindness is better than life. 
everything that you have, God. I want it. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to see you. I want to experience you. I want to walk in that place of communion. Revival will never be experienced as long as we're praying for God to bless our plans. I want to say that again. Revival will never be experienced as long as we're praying for God to bless our plans. The Bible says we must learn to delight in the ways of the Lord. And then whatever we ask will come to pass. Delight yourself in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? It means very simply this. When you make God your delight. When you make God the love of your life. Then He will put desires in your heart. He will take out desires that are not of Him. And the things that your flesh loves, you will end up hating. And the things that your flesh hates, you will end up loving. Your flesh hates to prayer. Why? Because in the flesh, it's boring to pray. There's no joy in prayer when you're praying in the flesh. Your flesh doesn't want to be crucified. Having you know crucifixion is a little bit uncomfortable. We have to come to that place where we delight in God's ways. Here's what Jesus said. He said, you've fallen from your first love. Verse 5, here's what I want you to do. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen... Repent and do the first works. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the first works. Three things that he says we need to do in order to be restored to our first love. Number one, remember. Remember. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Look back and reflect on how good the past was. How far... You've, you know, become for me now. When the prodigal son reflected on how good it was at home, he desired to return. The kindness of the Lord leads to repentance. When we recollect who our God is, when we begin to perceive and understand the goodness of God in our life, even if you've never experienced it in the past, when you begin to tap into that revelation and that revelation becomes a reality to you in your life and you see Him for who He is and what He's done in your life, you will turn to Him with all of your heart. You will not be able to resist serving Him. One writer said, when we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship Him. Not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet really understood or experienced who he is or what he's done. Psalm 106 verse 7. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses. And they rebelled by the sea. 
When you forget who God is. The Bible says without a vision, people perish. Do you know what that means? Without a prophetic revelation of who God is, people will cast off restraint. The word vision literally means of a personal revelation that is experiential in nature. God is not a God of history. God is a God of the present. He's a God of romance. He's a God who wants to know you and me and reveal Himself to us. He wants us to have a relationship with Him. He wants us to commune with Him. And when we have that revelation of who He is and what He's done, we will love Him because He first loved us. Secondly, He says, repent. When you remember and realize how much God loves us, you will repent. The measure of the revelation we have of God's love determines how much we will love Him. We will repent. We'll, we'll turn from what we're doing. You know what? Think about this. There are two things that can motivate you in life to do what is right. Love or fear. Fear is, I won't commit adultery because if I do, I'll lose my ministry. If I do that, my spouse will leave me. But your heart is still adulterous. Come on now. I'm preaching better than your amen in me, I'll tell you that. But when you get to the place where it's not an issue because you're so in love, it doesn't matter. I'm in love. I think the greatest example of someone who lived that way, besides Jesus, besides Jesus, is Joseph in the Old Testament. When Potiphar's wife came to him, tried to seduce him, what did he say? It was a no-brainer. You're kidding. you got to be kidding. Really? You think I'm going to go there? I don't think so. How could I do what is evil and sin against God? Yeah. And we would say, Joseph, nobody ever find out, man. I mean, come on, your dad isn't around. Brothers aren't around. You know what? There's no one around. You can get away with this. I'm sure the devil was whispering that in his ear. No one will ever find out. But what did he say? God sees. God knows. And I can't sin and do what is evil in his eyes, in his sight. See, the fear of God isn't just being afraid of the judgment of God. But the fear of God is recognizing that you grieve the heart of God. And you would drive a wedge between your fellowship and your relationship with Him. See, the Bible says, let me show you an example of this. Hebrews chapter 5. I'm going to read this to you from the Amplified Bible. Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 7, says of Jesus... This is the Amplified. Are you ready? In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up definite, specific petitions for that which he not only wanted but needed in supplications with strong crying and tears to him who was always able to save him out from death. He was heard, listen to this, because of his what? 
his godly fear. Did you hear that? He, he was heard because of his godly fear. Okay, one translation says because of his piety. Another translation says because of his reverence toward God. Now listen, without getting overly complicated, let me, let me share something with you. The word that is translated godly fear in the Greek language is a very unusual word. I think it's only found one other time in the entire New Testament. The word is not the typical word, phobe, like phobio we get for fear. It's a different word. And it literally can be translated, are you ready? He was heard because of his godly fear, his piety, in that Jesus shrank from the horrors of separation from the bright presence of the Father. That's what the Amplified says. He, He shrank back from the horrors of separation from the bright presence of the Father. Do you remember when he was in the garden and he cried out? He said what? Father, if it is possible that this cup be taken from me, let it happen. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Some people will tell you that Jesus was saying he didn't want to go to the cross. I don't believe that. Because there was another place where Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he said, the hour has come that the Son of Man will be delivered over to evil men. And he said, what shall I say? Deliver me from that hour? He said, no, Father, I commit myself into your hands. Glorify your name. That's my paraphrase. Glorify. See, what was he saying? He was saying, Lord, this cup, this cup of suffering. Even in the garden, he began to become overwhelmed with the sins of humanity. He was going to carry. They were going to be placed upon him. In fact, the Bible says that he began to sweat as, as, what, as it was great drops of blood. Medically, physiologically, some doctors will tell us that what took place was the pericardium sac around Jesus' heart, which holds the body fluids, ruptured. What took place at that point is the blood began to mingle with the body fluids, resulting in when you would urinate, when you would sweat, that blood would be mixed with it. And there are extreme examples in the lives of people where it's happened, where because of undue stress, great, great stress, the pericardium sac has ruptured, and this has actually taken place. Jesus, you know what happens when that takes place? You die. You die rather quickly. But you see, what happens is that I believe that Jesus experienced that in the garden, but then what happened is our had not yet come. He couldn't die in the garden. He had to go to the cross. Angels came, Luke's account says, and, and ministered to him. The angels touched him. Maybe they healed him physically so that he would be able to endure that suffering. He'd be able to go to the cross. Then when he was on the cross, and all the sins of the world were resting upon his shoulders, he couldn't take it. Because his Father, who is holy and righteous, you know, could no longer look upon the Son. And he cried out and he cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The thing that broke his heart, the thing that caused Jesus to cry out was not the pain, was not the suffering, but the fact that that relationship with his Father had been interrupted and severed because of the sin that was upon his shoulders. He so loved his Father. He so loved his Father. Nothing. Nothing can separate me 
can keep me from this love. Nothing in this world is worth it. Father, I love you. Father, I delight to know you. To know you. To walk with you. To hear your voice. I want to be a John that puts my head upon his bosom. A John who shares in the intimate knowledge of my King. And you see, when we love God like that, what takes place is we go back to first love. We repeat. Remember, repent, repeat. We do the first works. Those works that were motivated by first love. And we do it because it's the right thing to do. And we delight to do in His will. Jesus said in John 14, 23, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. If you love me, you're going you're to obey my teaching. It's not going to become an issue. We become moved by the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that every miracle that Jesus did, it was because He was moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. It was love. Love for God. The times when he got angry, he was, he was angry. You know what he was angry at? He was angry at what the devil had done to literally cause people to not experience that intimacy and that relationship that God created them to know. And he became angry. You see, there's a place of power where the miraculous will take place. When we so love God and we so love people, it'll become a natural thing. We won't have to work it up. We won't even have to pray for signs and wonders. Because God loves to do signs and wonders. He loves to do these things.
love me. You're going you're gonna to obey my teaching. It's not going to become an issue. We become moved by the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that every miracle that Jesus did, it was because he was moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. It was love. Love for God. The times when he got angry, he was, he was angry. You know what he was angry at? He was angry at what the devil had done to literally cause people to not experience that intimacy and that relationship that God created them to know. And he became angry. You see, there's a place of power where the miraculous will take place when we so love God and we so love people. It'll become a natural thing. We won't have to work it up. We won't even have to pray for signs and wonders. Because God loves to do signs and wonders. He loves to do these things. Introducing the Lowe's List. While there's innovation in every aisle, these are some of our experts' top picks for 2021. Customize any load with the Whirlpool 2-in-1 washer. Control your home with a touch, thanks to Samsung Connected Appliances. Repel the rain with HGTV Home by Sherwin-Williams Everlast. And keep the job going longer with the exclusive new line of flex power tools, made for pros. To see who made the full Lowe's List, visit Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. Let me be straight with you. This is a radio commercial for three small business insurance. The policy has no fine print. It's clear what's covered. So while you can't see the following scene, just know that this pet store is protected by three. Joe, did you leave the snake tank open? Look, I don't want to point fingers, but yes. It's fighting me. Sorry, sir. I'm calling my lawyer. They're going to need some help with this mess. Luckily, they have three. No fine print, just exceptional coverage. Three is a product of Berkshire Hathaway Direct Insurance Company. Three, no nonsense, just common sense.